Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGOasis.com is the place to get cards for your next Magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order, and use the code WouldThatBeGood for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to Patreon.com CCMTG to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening, and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MTGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the 388th episode of Constructed Chrism. I am your one-time Pro Tour competitor, host Mason, joined by my one-time co-host, Spencer, my three-time Abe, and then we have a special guest, I think he did some coverage or something for them, uh, Alexander Hain on this week. Hain, you visited some Pro Tours, is that right? Um, yeah, I've, I've visited a few Pro Tours. Okay. Well, if you ever want to talk about what it's like, uh, I actually I'm sitting in the seat where I played my pro tour because of COVID. So if you like, you know, if you want to get the experience, I can show you around with the camera and whatnot. I think it'll be a really fun time. Oh, I don't know. I I, I heard that you're also played some of those from this seat, right? Here. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you. I know you qualified. That's so exciting. Oh wow! I would have to believe that you played all of them from there, Alex. Because my understanding is the world map behind you is to place pins for wherever where you visited. And my understanding is you have no pins there, so you must have been to no pro tours. Well, you can't actually tell that. You can't see the whole map, right? Oh, that's fair. That's a good point. Yeah, only, only the Western Hemisphere. We know that Hain didn't play any Pro Tours there. But uh, I think that tracks with what I know about your history. I only have pins where I won Pro Tours. In, in, <laughs> oh, okay. In, in the... <laughs> it's funny. I actually have a map in front of me, and I also have no pins there. So it's so, so much alike. No, but it, uh, we do have uh, Hain on this week. If you somehow don't know Hain, Hain is truly one of the greatest Magic players of all time. Pro Tour champion, multiple Pro Tour top eights, Grand Prix champion, content creator for a long time. The Table for Two podcast is one that people always talk about with great admiration, respect. And they, I know they wanted to come back soon, but we'll figure that out later. We have a question for that on the show. But Hain, how are you doing? It, you know, I feel like I haven't heard from you in a while, and it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, it's it's great to be here. I mean, uh, I I briefly saw you at the in in Vegas for uh, you know <laughs> standing up pretty tall. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> by myself when i was single right like i was you're just like wow that guy's so handsome how is he by himself and single yeah well uh i mean with a mask on it's kind of sometimes hard to tell you know so i i just want to hang out actually i didn't actually play in either event but other than that i haven't that was the only t- trip i've taken during during covid otherwise i've been staying safe i haven't haven't gotten sick uh gotten vaccinated uh you know done some things with local friends as, as stuff started opening up more but spent basically like a year like a like a hermit, you know, uh, doing the the Zoom stuff, like kind of what we're doing right now, doing the the magic magic thing as as kind of the pro scene has slowly crumbled. If you want to talk about that, feel free to you know take the reins here. But how long is your podcast normally? I don't know if we have not time. not long enough, Alex. Not long enough. Well, for special guests, we have a lot another five minutes. So those are all yours, baby. Whatever you want to do with okay, them. Okay, I have those five minutes. Well, yeah, those are all yours. Say that uh, you know the pro tour that that kind of captured my heart back in the day. You know the play the game, see the world. Obviously, you can't really do that during COVID, but you at least could uh, can have a system with 
you know, aspirational elements that you can, you too can become a pro. You can, you know, make it onto the the gravy train or whatever they call it, where you qualify for multiple events from how you do rather than one, one at a time, you know, some rewards for being consistently successful rather than just spiking events, actual reasonable monetary prizes instead of uh, whatever, you know, the CEO found underneath their mattress that day. There's a bunch of things that have, have kind of gone down and magic looks like it's still going to have a competitive future, but it's not going to really have a professional future. And certainly the focus is more and more on casual as uh, you know, commander is, is kind of the, seems to be the new focus of, of what cards are designed for. And, you know, if that benefits the most people, that's, that's great. And, you know, it makes the company money, but for me personally, that's not how I like to engage with the game. So I see it as a negative, but. Oh, I, I was just going to jump in really quick that like this podcast, maybe it, it's funny to like hear other podcasts in magic that are like, you know, we were hit super hard by, by, you know, the, the changing competitive magic. And I'm like, yeah, my co-hosts were John Stern and Seth Manfield before the change. So, like, you know, they're like, I, I think that for, for most players listening to this podcast, like it, depending on what your goals are, Magic is just a lot different uh, than last time Alex was on the show. Yeah, it's important to think about. I think, you know, Handy Watson should maybe listen to the first time we had you on, which was episode 42 for having a plan. Today we're going to talk about planning ahead. So let's actually just move on with that sort of stuff. I'm sure we could spend the whole podcast talking about organized play, et cetera, et cetera. But we do need to focus on the always improving portion of the show. That is the main point of the network here is we're trying to, you know, improve and get better at matting, stuff like that. And Spencer, I'm letting you take the reins since it's your turn up to bat. How'd you improve this week? I feel like it's my third week going first, but I will still take the reins. Uh if you had asked me before i took a sick day today uh I, I would have mostly had taken a break from magic this week um instead i played a ton of magic today i used basically my whole sick day to just sit at this chair and uh watch alexander hayne pro tour winnings and play magic now that's that's new I've, I've tried to like kind of decide where I wanted to sit on this podcast. I've talked about that for a few weeks and you know, there was so much negativity coming out of the Twitter sphere and other magic podcasts last few weeks that I like almost didn't want to play magic. I was just like, so turned off by the idea of, you know, loading up arena or MTGO. And I don't know what happened today. You know, usually on my sick day is all like, play xbox or read a book uh like lay in lay in bed listen to an audiobook while like doing some other task but today i was like you know i really have a strong feeling about standard right now uh, especially after the last pro tour where i'm gonna say it and i'm sure you just leave a comment let me know how dumb you think i am but like where a lot of people seem to have phoned it in and like i just wholeheartedly disagreed with some of the results and it's fine, like, you know, there are multiple people, like, said, I didn't test for this, I just played Blue Red, I know Blue Red was a good deck, or I just played this, I knew this was a good deck. I would love your opinion, Alex, by the way, uh, where, like, I was like, I, I have a pretty strong belief that I think that, like, there's there's a lot of good decks in Standard. Like, I think Blue Black is a great deck, I think Mono White is a great deck, I think Mono Green is a great deck, I think there's lots of options for green decks, whether you just want to be green, whether you want to be green-red, whether you want to be Jund. Uh, I, I know that we 
uh, don't really have a lot of results to support this, but I think that like there are Soltai decks in Standard. I, I just think that like Standard is far more open than the results bear. And a lot of that is like, why try something else when Epiphany exists? But um, I wanted to try stuff today. Uh, played a ton of Zombies, which was one of the breakout decks from, uh, I don't think it was the Pro Tour, right? It was the, the SCG. The, uh, I think it was the NRG. That was the event that was recently. No, it was, was standard. It was yeah. It was either the SCG or the Pro Tour. Uh, took second place at one of them. Oh oh yeah yeah. It was uh, Cardum, the Magic Online grinder, played blue black red. Sorry, I had a whole moment. Yeah yeah. He actually took second place at the NRG this last weekend too. My brain just. And he played mono black zombies. Oh mono black zombies. Getting second was the Pro Tour. I, I thought I think it was the Pro Tour. I'm pretty sure. Um, was the with the blue black Sedgmore. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I I think that there's that like one. a ton of innovation. Getting to play a ton of standard. Um. I I didn't get to record my video with um, Abe this week. Um. But I, I plan on recording that soon. And uh, I do plan on also recording, as I said on Twitter, like a standard power rankings. I and I tweeted this day. I, I have a pretty big fear that standard is going to become this format that people are like, okay, there's a best deck. I'm just not gonna not gonna play standard now. And I think that there's a lot of innovation going on, and I wanted to be a part of that. Uh, or there's a lot of innovation that could go on, and I wanted to be a part of that. So that's how I spent today uh, after my little magic break. Hey, what about you? Uh, yeah, so this was actually fun enough for me. I was also planning on this week being a bit of a magic break week because, as some of the listeners' podcasts might know, some might not, I love Final Fantasy XIV Online, very good MMO, and their new expansion came out. Spent a bill a bunch of time to that this week, and then. The launch two times has been so bad. I actually played more Moto this week and the last two weeks than I probably had for a lot of time prior. So I spent a bunch of my time focusing on um, the different card options and builds of Hammer Time because I've just still been really enjoying working with and pushing towards what I think is the best position list of that deck and thinking about just the different ways that the sideboards can be built. I actually just started queuing up. There's a list from the... Uh, from, I forget which Magic Online event it was this weekend. There's one that played green for Ancient Stirrings. I'm, I'm trying out and trying to see how all of these different packages that are available uh, can really change some of the small things with matchup spreads and stuff. Um, really just getting into the nitty-gritty of it and playing matches and thinking about them, thinking more about the way that like individual sideboard cards matter in my deck and their like, mana constraints or the things that they're good at covering and bad at covering affect some small thing in my things in my main board. And really especially over my time as a competitive player, this is something that I've neglected. I'll usually like rely on the hive mind to tell me like, oh, everyone's doing this with their sideboards, so they're worried about this matchup. I should just do these things instead of going out there, playing the matches, seeing it all for myself, and then trying to work with what I know about all the options to, to come to a conclusion. So that's what I've been, what I've been working on. Hayne, I was told, do you have a one for us as well? Do I? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I was told that you wouldn't be involved in the part of the podcast. Okay, well, um, if you don't, we can just have the editor. I mean, I haven't, I haven't, I don't think this actual week I played any magic, but I played more magic recently than, than I normally do. I played some of the uh, magic online, they had the uh, the modern band gauntlet up. Oh, yeah, uh, I, I played a little bit of that. I did, I, I played with four different decks. I played Amulet Bloom, Splinter Twin, uh, Hogak, and I played with Blue Red Delver. Like Treasure Cruise Delver. I was gonna say, is it just Treasure Cruise that Delver gets? What is the what is the Delver deck? 
Treasure Cruise and has Jataxian Probe. Okay, both of those are strong. Okay, I can see that. I want 3-0 with three of those and 1-2 with one of them. Uh, I'll let you you can guess which which ones. I think Delver went 1-2. I think Titan went 1-2. See, this is funny because I just think Twin went 1-2. Well, one of the three of you is correct. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Which one? Well, guys did go 3-0. Yeah, that seems true. (laughs) Yeah, I would would never... (laughs) Uh, it was actually Amulet Titan that I went one two with. So that deck was so bad. <laughs> I just could never get it out of my head. The time I, the first time I ever proxied that deck when played in testing with someone, I just went tap land go and then killed them on turn two. And forever, my view was changed. Oh yeah, I mean it's very strong deck, and I think the London Mulligan makes it even better. Though I don't think I'd fully adapted to how much because I pl- I did play that deck unlike some of the others, uh, and. So I had kind of old habits from it that I think I needed to readjust. But also just the way the format set up and the other decks that existed, uh, it was not not well positioned there. Was the London Mulligan invented when Hogak was out? Because like all of those decks actually seem pretty strong with the London Mulligan. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I believe London Mulligan existed for, for Hogak. It was the, London, the Pro Tour London was the Pro Tour right before Pro Tour Hogak. Okay. Yeah. Yes. You top aided the first one off the London Mulligan, didn't you? Yeah, Hayden I did. I, Tron? I was yeah. Charm, yeah. Yeah. See, Hayne understands the power of the yeah, London Mulligan. There you go. There you he go. Came oh, I, that event. <laughs> I mean, I mulligan to three and played turn three, Karn, turn four, Ulamog. That, that's just not something you could ever do before London Mulligan. I mean, is, in theory, you could do it, but it was not anywhere near as realistic. Is there something that you learned from that event, from those events that you want to share with the listeners? From the London Mulligan event? Or you no, from no, the, from the from the MDGO yeah. events. Well, I learned why some of the cards are banned. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I haven't really played recent modern since it became 60% like Modern Horizons block constructed or whatever. So it was kind of fun to go back and, and explore. And I mean, definitely learn how some of the decks, like for instance, Amulet Bloom, the like best draws are way more broken, you know, with the Summer Bloom Amulet things. But from if you compare it to like the current Bloom Titan, the current Titan decks, I think it, you know, it's less resilient, less powerful in a lot of ways. It was mo- mostly just fun. I wasn't, you know, approaching it with the goal to to get better at Magic, though I'm kind of built in that I always try and, and win and optimize things. I think I learned that certainly a lot of these these decks, a lot of people would lose to, like, their own deck fizzling, myself included. You know, interesting ways to think outside the box. For example, with Hogak, I was playing against a uh, the Eggs deck, and I started using Hedron Crab to mill them. And which made it milled enough of their lotus blooms so it was very hard for them to go off, which was was funny because then basically they you know managed to, to to kill them even though it was slower. There's just a lot of you know ways to 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 think about things and to to examine like these broken cards and see like you know why what like looking at the design mistakes of of why these cards were were printed and what was wrong about them. You know, a card like Jataxian Probe looks kind of innocuous, right? Oh, what you don't get, you just draw a card and you look at their hand, you pay two life. But then when you consider the other effects of it, you know, you you trigger spells, spell matters cards, you put another card in the graveyard. And then of course, getting to see someone's hand is is pretty important when you're playing, you know, a, a combo deck or against a combo deck. That's, I guess, what I would, would say. But uh, mostly these days, I'm not really playing a lot of magic, uh, you know, before that, my my previous event was the, I guess, the Pro Tour. 
It's the Paulo effect. Obviously, now it means that like you're gonna have the best five years of your career and you know make hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Paulo was kind of silver for a while before he's one year. Come on, man. It was one year. <laughs> I think it was two, actually. Was it? It was he, two years. He yeah. came. He came on the podcast after his silver year. So I, I, I mean, maybe it was two. I could be wrong. I but, remember. With him talking about it on pro points for a little bit because he was like, "What am I doing?" You know. Then, That's fair. Now looking. <laughs> yeah, well, and then I mean, I think that was partly him really like n- not trying. There, there's a big difference between trying and not trying. He then joined like our team, which was team face to face at the time when we like started working with Channel Fireball, and he kind of got more with the face to face people who were like younger and hungrier, sort of you know up and comers more. Versus the CFB guys who kind of already had illustrious careers behind them and were cooling on magic for the most part. And I think that, you know, that Paulo kind of reignited the fire a bit and then he he started crushing it again. But it it just really does show that, you know, even someone as incredible as Paulo can still, you know, have two silver years or whatever. Even, Even one silver year is just, is kind of crazy. I would love to see a documentary like on the history of magic teams. Like, from talking to you, Paulo, John, Seth, just all of the stories of, like, the inner workings of the pro teams, and then also being friends with so many of those SEG grinders, it's just, like, it's really crazy to, like, think about, like, what worked for some people, what didn't work for some people, like... Yeah, there's a lot of sausage being made there that I don't know if you necessarily want to to see. The East-West Coast Bull stuff, by the way. Definite sausage being made. <laughs> yeah, besides all the politics and drama and all that stuff, there's also, I think people have an unrealistic expectation of how professional pros are when they're playtesting and stuff, you know. Um, and, you know, people, it's, it's not it's not super structures. It's not like everybody's just playing nonstop in, like, specific ways to approach these things. It's very very loose for a, a, a lot of it my understanding is your guys' dinner plans have been way more structured than your guys' testing that is sometimes the case then <laughs> sometimes you actually like there's one pro tour where i i just like took the reins i'm like look you're gonna work on these decks you're gonna work on these decks and we're gonna split it up and like do this and and we were all organized and then we came up with eldrazi that pro tour so, but then of course <laughs> after that we never, never do anything level like that level of organization again. <laughs> for the page, for the people who aren't patrons, we talk about this for results, not theory. <laughs> and so, <laughs> for the thing, it was like, well, did it, is it really going to work? We have to test it some other ways. No, that's awesome though. My always improving moment this week comes in kind of a weird way. Uh, I've been getting a lot of ducks in order. Uh, I have a lot of things going on right now with my life. And I'm trying to like I got a lot of a lot of irons going, a lot of hot stoves, and I'm having to shuffle them all around. I'm trying to be a little bit more structured and work on those sort of things, and also fit in time to still play Magic and work on these sort of things. So I've got a couple events coming up. I have like I'm playing a, a little 1K or whatever this weekend. That's nothing important, but I have like the energy events that it seems they're going to start up, and I might be playing a bunch of those. So I want to like start playing modern again. I'm trying to make time while working a full time job and doing the podcast and writing the articles and making the daily YouTube video content and streaming. And so uh, having to like schedule out and block at that time and be the most efficient with it. And also, you know, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, with the efficiency of time and finding spots to work on these sort of things 
doing those things we've talked about on the podcast before where it comes from simple stuff like taking the time to look over the challenge results and the showcase results and look at sideboards and how people are doing that during your lunch break when if you have a moment, you know, and things of that nature, just working on those sort of skills and getting better at using my time and staying organized and making sure that, you know, I've set aside this hour to record, you know, the podcast or I've set aside this much time to stream and making sure we're doing all these sort of things so that they don't start to a become overwhelming or B have any of them kind of drop, you know, I'm trying to keep them all warm and not burn anything. So it's important. I think it's important, you know, it's magic. If it's not your full-time thing, it can be hard to balance everything. And, you know, getting a little better at that, I think is going to pay some pretty big dividends down the line. That was it for mine. We do have some housekeeping before we talk to Hayne about planning ahead. Cause we've been planning ahead for a little something special for the patrons and also for everyone at large. So there's an event coming up, the CCMTG open. It's going to be a quarterly event. So every three months, uh, we're going to have one of these. It's going to be $10 to enter or free for our Diamond supporters on Patreon. Uh, you can look at all that stuff up at, at patreon.com slash ccmtg. $10 to enter or if you're a Diamond, you get in there. There's a trophy included for the winner. Uh, we're going to work with that if you're outside the United States or the Canada area to get you the trophy. And then we have some prizes. So first place is going to get $200 in Oasis Game Store credit. That is our proud sponsor of the show and a trophy. Second place gets you 100 Third and fourth are going to get you 50 and fifth through eighth get you $25. That's right, Hayne, that's more money than actual Promatic has right now. I know you're hungry for it. We'll happily send you the trophy if you want to come and play in them. Uh, there's no current invitational plans, but we would love to do that sort of thing. And if these things kind of take off, we will retroactively make it happen, just like the MPL. We saw how successful that was, so we want to emulate that. We know how much players love that sort of thing. So we're going to be doing that, and we're really excited. You see, Spencer is putting his head down because he's just thinking about all the amazing ideas and stuff. Uh, he loves it when I do these sort of bits on the podcast. They're his favorite. And so we're doing all that, but no, seriously, it's going to be exciting. We're going to be streaming this. Uh, I believe the first one, the plan is to be standard. Uh, and it'll be on Arena, but we're leaving the door open to do modern, especially of a set like, you know, the Lord of the Rings set is coming out, which is a modern exclusive set. And so, you know, that might change the game, and we might be doing it on MTGO at that time. So keep an eye out for that sort of thing. I believe Spencer, quote me if I'm wrong, but we're looking to have the first one in February. Is that correct? That's yeah, like well, the loose time frame right now? Yeah, like kind of the three things. I think the first one we decided we want to do in February. For the first one, I think that the plan is to only – uh, do the top eight as far as uh, feature matches and stuff. Additional prizes are also based on attendance. So, like, you know, those are just the prizes that we're giving away. Actually, $500 store credit on top of whatever the entry freeze fees bring in. We'll announce every event what the additional prize support will be. I think that January is really busy for human beings. Just the holidays end. People want to, like, get their stuff in order. And, and also, uh, while... Uh, I don't know that we should announce that it should be standard. I, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm down for whatever. Like, the first one will be on uh, MTG Melee, um, whether that's historic, whether that's uh, alchemy, alchemy, yeah, or standard. <laughs> it won't be. It won't be Pioneer Abe. Um, but like, you know, it, it, leave a comment on this video. Like, let us know what you want it to be. But we want to. I, I've gotten a lot of feedback that like people are looking for a way to compete that is not the normal stuff. Like the SCG online stuff has ended. Other stuff has ended. People want to compete and we're happy to provide an avenue for people to do that. Why is it always back to pioneer, man? 
What? Why I gotta keep digging at me like that? Format's great. I mean, you got Lear right, so I could just I gotta get my digs in when I can because next week we're gonna literally talk about how Mason was so wrong, and Spencer somehow agreed with him again. Uh, I had fun the last time I played Pioneer back back in early 2020 when COVID was not yet no uh, thing. <laughs> what did, what did you play in the the Pioneer Pro Tour? Is that I, I played Inverter. It was great. Man after my own heart. See, this is why you're tall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> great. Great this is, is all why you're tall? <laughs> what? <laughs> Are you telling me that's all? Like, I'm 5'8 over here, guys. If you tell me all I had to do this whole time is be pro into murder, I'd grow three inches. Wow. Like, let's go. I'll sign this. Where's the petition? Let's go. <laughs> it's too late now. You should have thought about that when the time came in Pioneer instead of playing Savage Knuckle Blade or whatever you did. I, I don't know. <laughs> never never did that. That's a plain <laughs> falsehood. I know you're a big Nux fan, so you know. I just assumed. You know, A lot of people did that with Pioneer. We all had the phase where we played our favorite standard deck. You know, Getting allies into car was my homie. But enough of that. Let's hop into our main topic, planning ahead with Hank. Yeah, I'm going to kind of take over from here and – it was funny. Um, this this actually has been – I don't know if Alex knows. I, actually, Alex, you do know this because I told you this when I invited you on. When I kind of came back to the show in the producer role rather than joining the show again as a host, one of the things that I said to Abe when he joined the show um, as, as we kind of like had our first podcast meeting was I said, Abe, one of the things that we used to do pretty often is we try to get a, a, a really great guest every eight, eight weeks or so. And Abe's like, that sounds super cool. Who do you think we get? I said – you tell me who you want, Abe, and I will get them. And Abe was like, I would love to do a podcast with Alexander Hain. And Abe, I... It's true. I'm living uh, the dream. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say that, you know, we, we're gonna, every time we try and get a really great guest on, and when we can't, we invite people <laughs> No, no. Croquis, it's it's you, really late for croquis. Right? No, shut so up. Like Stop. Don't do that. <laughs> I, I, so, I think a second to croquis is not a bad place to be. I, I mean. <laughs> you're the worst. Abe, get Zan on the show. I, that's true. We could. Abe, I actually – I put this in the show notes because I actually wanted to give you the opportunity. Like, you know, you could have said any human. Like, any any human. I would have preferred that you said, like, a good magic player. But, like, why why did you want Alex? Yeah, actually, the, uh, the story behind why I said Alex in that moment is a little bit – like kind of what I was going through with my relationship to magic at the time, dead middle of code. Like, I mean, I guess we're still dead middle of COVID, but you know, we're all dead middle of COVID organized play is dying. Everything's hitting the fan. It's all, it's all over the place, especially having time to take a rest from how much I was engaging with, uh, with tournament magic uh, before the pandemic, between the SDGs and stuff, I had been consuming a bunch of content and I'd gotten around to listening to table for two. And like, honestly, there are so many things that at the time when I was just every time I was driving, listening table table for two that Alex would say that would relate to me or open my eyes to something that I had maybe thought, but not knew how to articulate that it was so exactly what I like felt like I needed to get through this kind of feeling overall, like weighted feeling of stagnation around where I'd been with magic and where, um, where magic was that it, it really kind of remotivated me and reignited some of that, that fire inside me to be, a better magic player and to th- like take things more seriously because as much as things are grim now, it always feels like organized play won't be the way it is right now forever. You know, it is like something that I continue to have to remind myself. And I think no, a lot of people do, but uh, regardless, like magic is a game that I love and playing it and growing and thinking about it in new ways and just getting better at something is something that has meant a lot to me. And 
at that time, specifically Alex was someone who like his knowledge that he shared on that podcast uh, had really helped me personally. And so to get to be a part of sharing knowledge with people who feel similarly uh, on the show that we do uh, with him would have been something that, and still is something that uh, really, really meant a lot to me in that moment. So I'm really happy to, that we could make it happen and that he's here. So I love to hear that. Alex, uh, I, I think made sense. forty-eight episode episode forty-eight was the last Alex Kane episode for 42. CC. Forty-two. You know, it it's funny. I don't know that a KYT podcast has been mentioned this much on this show in in years. Um, so if KYT, you're not leaving a comment. I know you're watching this. If you're not leaving a comment. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be mad at you. But it, it was funny when he, when he invited you on, Alex. I thought of how how upset that I, I felt like we let you down the last time you were on the show. We, I think there was even like a preface at the beginning of the audio. I, I don't even know that you can find it anymore. Um, just kind of how the, the website changed. Or I was like, listen, Alex was so good on this podcast that we're going to post this. But you can't hear anyone else on the show. But that's how good you were. That's how good you were at explaining your thoughts. And, you know, while we're not in the exact same topic, I, w- I invited you on to talk about planning ahead because the, the insight that you had was so good that I... I I think that it's like legitimately one of those timeless topics that we get to talk about with you. That's the stuff in magic that I find more interesting. I don't think I'm the person you should go to for, you know, especially not now for like up to the date meta knowledge or anything like that. You know, that's never been like my strength though. There were definitely times where I was really up to date on, on everything. I knew how many copies of a card and every deck would play, you know, and how, how to get an edge in, in the mirrors and everything like that. Now it's kind of you know, I'm I'm washed up as the as the kids say I guess, uh, and <laughs> so I just have my my experience and and my general knowledge of the game you know the things that have have helped me and kind of you know from 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 Magic and previously when I when I played chess competitively you know uh, which I guess is why I have kind of a different approach than a lot of Magic players when it comes to things like having a plan and and trying to follow through with it. Well, let, let's let's go into that, though, because I actually am curious, you know, depending on who you talk to as a Magic player, um, you know, even, even Mason, right? You came from Vanguard, or I don't know the name of the game. I'm so sorry. Cardfight Vanguard. Card, yeah. Cardfight Vanguard. You've got players that come from poker. You've got players that come from chess. How, how, where, did, where do you think that, like, the ability to plan ahead in a game of Magic comes from for you? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess my yeah, like I said, my approach definitely to Magic started with, with kind of my chess foundation. Like I, I started playing chess from a very early age. Like I think my dad taught me when I was two years old, and you know I was playing in tournaments, you know, before I was five, and you know winning winning money in, in tournaments a lot of my childhood and until I kind of around age thirteen or something, I, I quit to do more teenager things before coming back to it kind of and you know, when I was like 17, 18. In, in chess, you learn about thinking, right? It's, it's, you learn about looking at the board, everything's out there, everything's in the open, and you just have to find ways of, of calculating what's going to happen, what moves are effective and what are not. That definitely teaches you a lot of different skills than like, you know, if you come from a poker background, you, you learn a lot of different things. So, you know, in chess, you have to, first of all, be able to eliminate because there's basically whenever you look at a move, right, then you have to consider the move that your opponent's going to make and then the, what you're going to make after that. And it's, you know, it's a, 
it's a, a tree branch is kind of that 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 goes out infinitely, right? And uh, the deeper you go, the more possibilities there are. So one important thing is being able to eliminate the bad moves right away, so you don't have to go through those passages, right? And and examine every possibility there, because you can immediately say, okay, this one is really bad. I'm not going to do that move. It's funny you said that because that is the number one piece of advice that Paulo has given on this podcast is to eliminate the the bad decisions so that you don't have to think about them. Like you, you already you already know they're bad. So is that a step in magic or is there more steps to creating this this plan ahead of like what you're doing? Because I, I don't remember if it was a Brett, Brad Nelson article or another article, but I, I remember reading an article that talked about like being one turn or two turns, however many turns ahead of your opponent uh, in, in a game of magic and understanding what their options are. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of steps. I think, I do think when you're, you know, when you're starting to think about your turn you're, you're make, you know, you, you should always be coming up with a plan. And I think definitely the first step should be eliminating the obvious bad things. You know, for example, people can joke about lightning bolting yourself, right? You know, that's obviously bad, but you know, if you're playing a death shadow deck, it might not be right. It might actually be the best play, but obviously if you're not playing a death shadow deck, you can usually eliminate that possibility right off the bat, not have to think through it anymore. I think one of the big things is that most people who come to magic, right? You start playing magic because it's a game, because it's fun. You want to play with your friends. You don't necessarily want to do kind of the homework or the deep thinking about turns, the, the you know, pro level magic or the pursuit of, of getting better requires, right? It's not as easy. It's not as fun, you know, from, from like where you start, right? People just, you're just going to slam your card on the table and, and, you know, hopefully it works out or this feels like it's the right play. I'm going to just do it. And I think a lot of those habits, you know, people hold on to them for a long time. And I think being able to like reassess your foundations and make sure that you're, you're not just on autopilot doing these things that, you know, you, you started doing, I think that's like, you know, an earlier step because you kind of have to do that before the, the game starts, right? You have to re-access, like re-examine that. For me, like before, you know, Spencer, you have you have Avison restored top eight right now on, on your screen. But for me, before that tournament, one of the big things I did is I just looked back and I tried to, you know, did the kind of classic Zen thing of, you know, the, the master wants to pour you a cup of tea, but your cup's already full, right? You can't fill it up if you've already got a full cup. You have to kind of unlearn the things that you've learned, the the bad habits, uh, the the autopilot, the idea of like, oh, I'm just going to attack with my creatures. It, you know, it looks okay. Not actually just do all the math of like, okay, I should attack with two of my three creatures because then having this one back, I prevent more damage or even if it's less damage, but the way that the turns work out and you know, I end up winning this race by this much. So obviously you have to also be able to do those calculations, but you know, if you've played enough magic, doing the calculation isn't that hard. It's more about, you know, making yourself do them. Uh, and a lot of times people just skip over them because it's work, you know, it, it's an effort and instinctively we want to just do the, the easier thing. I've never heard that analogy before. It's something that I've had to do a lot in Magic that I've never realized. The number of times where, like, the always improving segment for me, I think Mason and Michael and Matt, like, I think we've all said this, where, like, we, like, had to take a step back, unlearn things or relearn things. 
And the way you just put that was, I don't know, really poetic. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, I think like people often think, right, that you make a mistake and you're going to improve, you want to improve it, right? Not make the same mistake twice. I think that's, you know, obviously the best is when you can learn from someone else's mistake rather than your own. But the second best is learning from your own mistake and not repeating it. But sometimes you have to go to the root of why you made that mistake, not just like that individual mistake, right? It's the symptom often of of a worse disease. And, you know, you can fix the fact that you like tapped your lens badly in this one scenario, but you should get back to, you should work on the fundamentals of getting into the habit of tapping your lens the best way in general, so that, you know, this mistake doesn't, doesn't come up and neither do similar mistakes. For that reason, like, I think people view improving at magic as like a slope upwards, right? Like you're just slowly get better and better and better, like, you know, a train chugging away up, a, up a hill. But really, I kind of view it much more like there's big hills and there's, there's downward parts too. Like you, you go up slowly kind of, and then you kind of go down sometimes when you realize like you have to readdress some, something that you have as one of your fundamentals that's wrong because you need to do that that work before then you just shoot up so it's kind of like it's slowly and then all at once your your improvements in magic the, the, the leveling up is is not just a gradual thing you mentioned this and i i'm curious do you think that has to do with like the fact that magic changes or do you think that it's just natural to plateau at anything that you're like trying to do whether it's chess or tft or poker or, uh you know mason on on uh bumble like is there like a is there like obvious plateaus and dips or or do you think that magic's evolution does this i do think magic is unique in in the fact that it changes and so a lot of the skills that you learn are adapting to change right like in chess right you can you can just learn raw calculation you learn some shortcuts of of how to eliminate things uh, and you, you learn opening theory so you know which is also basically a shortcut that you're you know how the first few moves work out through memorization so you don't have to you know use raw brain power to calculate all of that but in magic you can't necessarily do that like the opening stuff changes you know with with every new deck with every new set with every new card or or change to the meta right uh, so being adaptable is, is, is important, but I don't think that has to do with kind of the way that improvement in magic happens. I do think that's, that's the way it happens in a lot of things. I do. I think like you, you kind of improve to a point where you do sort of plateau until you have kind of that epiphany that, that enables you to reach the next level. And sometimes that does involve you losing, let's say for a long time before you suddenly have a breakthrough and then, you're just winning more than you ever have. I used to think that was just kind of how it was for me, but I talking to more people and seeing their journeys too. Um, I think that's a pretty common thing. And, you know, that people will be like at the level where they top eight PTQs a lot, you know, but never quite break through. And then suddenly they have a year where they're just not doing well at all. They don't, don't even top eight PTQs, but then the year after that, they're really crushing it. Somehow they, they qualify for the pro first pro tour maybe they even top it a gp or something you know that because they had that that breakthrough being able to plan ahead i think is the number is probably the number one skill like in a game of magic there's other things like outside the game you know your preparation choosing a deck and stuff that might lead to more win rate but inside a game i think it's the most important thing and you mentioned paulo and he wrote an article a while back where he interviewed a lot of great players 
and you know ask them why do you think what do you, they think they're the thing that separates them from other great players is or from good players and the number one answer was having a plan having a strategy and kind of following through on it and i think you know you mentioned even a bad plan is better than no plan at all and i do agree but of course it's better to have a good plan and i do think that sometimes you have a bad plan and it is important to realize that your plan is bad and that you do need to readjust at times you know there's even other classic articles like mike flores is you know who's the beatdown uh or philosophy of fire or things like that where you know the idea is that you can lose even if you should be winning if you don't understand what your role is what your strategy should be and kind of you know from a chess background people break this into tactics and strategy where tactics is like you know in, in chess it's oh you can take this piece like here because if they capture back you get to fork their queen or whatever, you know, uh, that's a tactic. But a strategy is figuring out that, you know, there's this this weakness here uh, in their pawn chain, let's say, and that you're going to slowly attack that and put more pressure there and eventually, you know, hopefully win a pawn. That's more of a strategy. Similarly, you know, in, in, in Magic, there could be a, a tactic I view as like, what are you going to do this current turn? You know, are you going to try and trick them into using their pump spell when you have a removal spell? That's a tactic, right? Um, but a strategy is like, how are you going to win this game? Like, what does this game look like if you're winning it? You know, in Constructed, that's very easy to tell compared to Limited where, you know, you don't necessarily know. You're usually just going to have maneuvered your card slightly better. But in Constructed, you know, if, if you're playing blue-black control and your opponent's playing mono-red aggro, how does this game look like? Well, you know, it probably looks like them having no creatures in play, no cards in their hand. And you having, you know, four, four or five cards in hand and attacking them for lethal with whatever your win condition is, right? Um, if you're playing mono-red against blue-black control, it looks like, you know, them having seven cards in hand and, like, four lands and being at zero life with you having basically used up all your resources, you know? You, and you want to make your game plan work towards that position, how that, how that end game looks. Kind of like when you're a kid and you're trying to solve one of the little mazes on a piece of paper, you know, you, if you if you work from the entrance and try and get to the the center, it's a lot harder than if you work from the center and work out and you find out where the the exit is, right? And I think that's sometimes how you want to approach with with a plan. You want to work backwards and find what is the end game you want to enable, and like then figure out what steps you need to take to get there. And sometimes that might involve you, you know, sacrificing resources to get more life or more time because you realize that when the game gets to a later point, it's going to be beneficial for you. You know, if you're the blue black control deck, you don't mind exchanging two cards of yours for one of your opponents. If it buys you more time because they need every single one of their cards to kill you. And you know, you get to the point in the late game where you're going to have plenty of cards, way more resources than them. So, uh, you know, if you're playing the mono red deck, it's, you know, it's important that you, you don't want to use two burn spells on one of their creatures. You sometimes just want to, you know, you don't want to not attack with your three creatures because one of them is going to die. You want to attack with all of them just because you get that those two hits in with the other creatures. And being able to identify those those decision points is really important. Whereas if you're kind of were on the other side, you know, if, if you're valuing how many creatures you have in play for like an alpha strike with like, let's say a white weenie deck that has some big pump effect, right? You might want to keep your creatures around and wait till you can get that big alpha in, and that's a different plan uh, yeah. with the red deck. So, 
having having to figure that out is really important, and I think you will win a lot of games that you wouldn't if you just played on the tactical level only and just focused on kind of this turn. And it just makes your decisions easier because you know what you're really trying to accomplish. It's so funny. One of the things that we try to preach on this podcast is how some of the skills that you're going to learn on this podcast, like they transcend magic, right? Like they go beyond just like playing this game that we all love. One of the number one things in my entire job is balancing being tactical versus being strategical. For those who don't know, I'm a, a product manager for software. You know, you're going to have your your two-week plan, whether that's your sprint, and then you're going to have your three-year plan, right? Your strategic plan for where you want to end up. What Alex is breaking down here is kind of these micro decisions that make up your tactical decisions, and then these macro decisions that make up how he's going to win the game at the end of this. And it, it's it's really beautiful. You know, this is, of course, is a constructed podcast, but, you know, for a limited example, that where you know your opponent has this one bomb creature that you can't really beat, right? And you have only one removal spell in your deck that can answer it. You have that removal spell in your hand, you know, you're not, and you're a slow deck, you're planning to have a really long game. Uh, and your opponent, like, plays a creature and, like, plays a pump spell on it in combat that's going to kill your creature, and you could use this removal spell, kill it, and you get a two-for-one. If you're examining the game purely tactically, that's what you're, you're going to do. You get a two-for-one. That's great. Your creature lives. They lose their creature and their pump spell. But if you look on a strategic level, you know you need to save that removal spell for their bomb creature because at some point it's going to come down and you're going to need to kill it. If you are just looking tactically, sure, you're going to get advantage in the moment. And maybe the game does end before they draw their bomb rare. But it's more likely that it doesn't. And you just end up losing to that card instead. Uh, so, you know, it's, you have to you have to be able to see the bigger picture and, and see how you're going to actually win the game, not just, you know, come out ahead on cards or life or tempo or whatever. Alex, you, me, and Abe, we're, we're these magic boomers. Uh, you know, Mason's this this Zoomer up in here trying to, trying to show us all up. But I, I'm curious, like, is there a place that, you know, planning ahead helped you the most in your magic career. I don't think that we did your career justice by the way. You know, we just mentioned your pro tour win, but like, you know, you your rise in magic was kind of meteoric, right? Like, you went from winning a PTQ to winning a pro tour to like being on the train for, I mean, a decade, right? Like, you you really have have stayed there after your meteoric rise, which is not something that a lot of like first time pro tour winners get to do. Yeah, well, a lot of people think I won my first ever Pro Tour. I didn't. I mean, I was Rookie of the Year, so I, it was my fourth Pro Tour that I won. Right. I'd cashed a, a Pro Tour before that and got an extra Pro Points in another one. And yeah, so I have have total of three Pro Tour top eights and five GP wins. And uh, I think somewhere like 13 top eights or something. I'm not sure exactly how many GP top eights I have. but Good problem uh, to have. I don't the the line. I don't know how many GP top hits I have is like a, I know how many I have and it's zero. I know Mason is a ninth. Uh... I'm tied for the closest miss with Mr. Joe Lissette. <laughs> yeah, that I've, one. I've, I've, got, I've got at least a, one ninth as well, but you know it's there's. But you're there's not tied for the closest. Okay. <laughs> 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 no, in, in all oh, seriousness, yeah. though, like. Is there like a time that you can identify where you thought to yourself, the, like the fact that I had this skill 
and that this is the thing that has helped me the most in magic was the thing that got me to this point. I think the era sort of in the 2013, 2015 era where there were, you know, Sphinx's revelation, for example, was a card or Esper dragons was a deck with dig through time. And uh, those, those decks where they were very powerful and there were a bunch of like control mirrors. Uh, that's, that's probably where I gained the biggest edge from my ability to plan ahead. It's my biggest loss. And like, if there's ever a moment where I identified that I was terrible at magic, I was GP Albuquerque. I was playing the Esper mirror that you just identified against um, Shahar Shenhar. And I had a moment where uh, he had a Jace activation and I had a split and he put his, his etherling on the bottom of his deck. And it was like, maybe 15 turns later where he picks up his deck and counts it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you've been doing this the whole time. Like I am so out of my depth. Like I am so far behind you. I, I cannot express how big of a, like I suck. And like, you've been doing this for 15 turns and I, I'm just bad. How do you bridge that gap, Alex? Like, you know, you're, you're talking about like these mirrors where, you know, obviously at the time Shahar was the world champion, but like he clearly knew what the matchup was about. And the second he activated that Jace, the whole game changed. Again, you know, you're thinking of how do you win in these mirrors, you know, usually resolving an Aetherling, right, would, was basically a game winning event. So he's got this Aetherling, he knows where it is in his library. It's important to kind of plan his game plan around when he's going to draw it and how he's going to resolve it. So making those decisions and making decisions in the game to get to that point to try and, you know, make you use counterspells on other things for him to save some counterspells to be able to resolve his Aetherling when it matters. Those are all things that you should be considering, you know, in, in that type of type of matchup where, you know, there's, again, there's a lot of tactical dances along the way, but you have to keep the, keep the big picture in mind because you know, you can you can resolve a Sphinx's Revelation for four, that's fine. But, you know, as long as he still has the ability to resolve his Aetherling, he's going to still come out ahead. And I think those mirrors were very much, you know, about figuring those things out. And with Dig Through Time was a bit less long-term and more kind of sequencing. Like, there was a point where Andrea Mangucci was blown away when we're testing with with him and, and Paulo that it seemed like every game Paulo would always... You know, be able, would always end up playing cards and then have two mana open, blue mana open, with exactly six cards in his graveyard to be able to dig through time. And it's like, you know, it's not an accident. You know, it's, he's not just lucky that this happens every time. He's been planning out the turns and the sequencing so that this is going to happen. Andrea, I think that was probably a level up moment, right? It, it's not often you get to, you know, watch Picasso paint or whatever, right? Uh, <laughs> but you, you, you know, getting to to learn from someone like Paulo is is always a pleasure. That was like I think I was actually the best at, at doing that, and that's why kind of for the the first two GPs won by Sphinx's Revelation were both won by me, and then uh, I won the first GP also with Esper Dragons, and you know that was because I would play these mirrors and like I felt basically invincible. I felt the only way I could lose in those mirrors was to to the clock. If, because if time would run out and we'd get a draw, the way the games played out was, you know, almost chess-like in the way that I could plan for things. And any one tiny error by my opponent would just end the game immediately. And if I wouldn't make that error, 
uh, I could kind of grind them out to the point that they would make one mistake. I've been really chewing on over here the uh, the thing you said earlier about how like you know when you're a kid and you do the like maze on the like play mat when you're at Denny's or whatever, and how it's so much easier to do it from the center and go back towards the exit than going forwards. Just thinking about how I often try to talk to people about thinking through. You said, you know, when you start playing, you're kind of more interested in making things happen to the game and playing out a game than you are trying to optimize all of these decisions for any given outcome, right? And so, like, really transferring from moving forward through the maze and enjoying the experience of, oh, no, I get trapped over here <laughs> uh, to kind of constructing backwards, or like all these different endpoints in this game that's so divergent as magic where things can play out in so many different ways. Like, do you think it's accurate in saying that your ability to look at all of those from the start and manage all the different ways to go and pick the one that is the, like, you know, the cleanest tactically with what you have available is like really that skill or where that really shines for you. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good way to, to put it. I mean, again, like, yeah, the, the, the parallel of when you're starting to play, you know, you're just like when you're doing the maze, you're trying to have fun and like explore and see what what's happening with it versus afterwards. And you're trying to, solve and you're trying to solve it as quickly as possible right as efficiently as possible that's kind of like the the two approaches of magic right the you know the the kitchen table approach or the 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 pro level approach and yeah i do think that being able to find those find those branches and see which ones you know are which ones lead towards more outcomes that you want on a tactical level is is kind of is what you want to do when you when you like in dune you can take the spice and you can see all the possible futures right uh, <laughs> you want to you want to you want to go towards the ones that that tend to win the game for you more and kind of if you can you know realize that that's kind of always what you're doing when you make a decision of magic you're making a percentage play uh, that you know some percentage of the time is going to lose and some percentage of the time is going to win and of course you're making a whole bunch of these over a course of a game you know if every one you look at and you kind of just look at the the tapestry of of branching out pathways. And you take the one that has more beneficial pathways, and uh, you keep doing that. You know, you're you're going to end up in a beneficial pathway more often than not. Alex, I'm I'm kind of curious. You you mentioned that you felt like you know that you were really good at this skill, um, which is obviously why we invited you on the show to talk about it. But oh, I thought I, it was just because you like my company. I I do no, like your company. We couldn't have croquis, and then we couldn't get croquis. Were like. <laughs> he's trying to find the tallest uh, guy who would, who would show up, right? Exactly. <laughs> We're not taller than Mason. He's insecure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, Mason shows up. Mason three people. Yeah. Like, you know, it, obviously, uh, you doubted my food picking ability at GP Salt Lake, and then you immediately apologized and thanked me. So we didn't pick you for your your uh, food picking abilities. Uh, we we picked you for this though. You you mentioned this effect that I think that. A, uh, happens a lot in different games. Um, I've been getting more into Smash Ultimate lately. Um, my son, I'm teaching him to play uh, po the Pokemon TCG. Um, and recently, like, I have been playing more of, like, the Pokemon video game. And you, you, if you have those moments where, like, you fat thumb something or, like, you make, a, you make an error and you realize it, like, two seconds later, it's like, oh, my gosh. Like, this is going to cost me for... X amount of time, right? Those errors, they add up to so much more than that individual moment, right? They add up to recovering from them. 
And I'm curious, is there like a moment that you find the skill helps you the most? Like, is there a moment where, because you didn't make that error, because you have have planned ahead for these turns, that you get that moment where you have two blue open and you're able to cast take through time or something something larger? Is there is there something you could tut of the cast? Yeah, well, there's, I mean, there's definitely, because you don't make those errors, you do find yourself in scenarios like where you can get lo- like things that look like luck from the outside, but you kind of do put yourself in positions to get lucky more often. Right. Like for instance, you're, you're watching the miracles coverage. Right. And like every time you draw a miracle, Oh, so lucky he drew a miracle. Well, you know, the deck has 16 of them and kind of the whole way that, that I'm playing the game in the, with that deck was to maximize my odds of drawing a, a beneficial one at a beneficial time uh, with, you know, think twice, thought scour at the right times not playing them like when I don't have mana to cast a good miracle. It, it can look like luck from the outside, but you know, when you're piloting it, when you're in 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 this in the spot, you know, sure, you, you got lucky, but you put yourself in that position. You made all the right decisions to get there. Uh same with the dig through time. You know, you made those decisions so that you're when you get to the spot, you can dig for for the most efficient way. You know, when you make a mistake that can cost you, you know, being able to do that. You might only have five cards in your graveyard when you could have used a fetch land earlier to be able to get into a position where if you did draw dig, you'd be able to cast it. I've got to rewind. I've got to, I've got to ask you this question now because I've never asked you this question and I don't know if you answered this on the A team after you won the pro tour. So I, I need to ask it. Did you win that pro tour because you were able to do this when other people weren't having success with this deck? Was that the difference? The deck wasn't a known quantity or anything, right? It was a deck that I made and then like, the Canadians that I was working with also played. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, back then, like, my my pro team was just any Canadian that wanted could could come and test with us. You know, Canada hadn't really seen the resurgence of Magic that it kind of had a little bit after the Pro Tour. There weren't that many great players. Uh, the, the average quality of player playing the deck was relatively low, which was part of why I think uh, the win rate wasn't that high. So, you know, the deck is is maligned for that reason. It wasn't it was not a, an amazing deck by any means, but it was definitely not as bad as people make it out to be uh, looking backwards. Uh, and yeah, I think that I was able to play it at a much higher level than, than most people. In fact, I had I had to write a primer on the deck uh, because my teammates like I couldn't play it. Uh, I think that primer is probably out there somewhere at some point. It was the, the tone in that was, was, uh, was, something i know some people uh enjoyed it some people gave me some hate for it whatever it's been a decade you can you can see what you want at this point that's great these matches like uh in the top eight for example i'm playing against a hexproof deck so you don't necessarily see the same amount of like planning that's required in some other matchups like in, in control mirrors where which is where it really uh really is interesting you know where you get to points where like you can miracle a temporal mastery but it's correct not to do it even on turn two because yeah. you need to set up a point where you're going to like play Tamio and just take a bunch of turns in a row to ultimate it before they can do anything. Right. Cause or, I think, I think blue red and you can entreat and then also temporal mastery. So they can't terminus you on their turn. Uh, things like that. And being yeah. able to make, make those plans realize again, you know, in the tactical thing, Oh, tactically, obviously you should cast this temporal mastery because it's only two mana and you get a free turn. But strategically, you know that you need that to be able to win in a later turn. It was one of the more interesting block constructed formats. So I think that, though, it does speak to that question there, right? Like, where did this skill help you the most? 
you know, whether it's this Pro Tour or another one, like, uh, the success that you had with this deck certainly outweighed. Uh, did John, did, was John at that Pro Tour? Did he play this deck? I'd love to rip John him. Turn? No, no, he, okay. he, he okay. hadn't qualified yet. Was, okay. That's too bad. I would have loved to, to dagger him. No, uh, he only joined our squad. It was actually the following Pro Tour, which was uh, Seattle Return to Ravnica, which, which uh, Sifka won. How do you think that listeners could decide where they're at this with this skill? Like, they're they're self-reflecting. They're looking at, I I want to be more like Alex and and have this ability. How how do they see where they're at? For the most part, they people sh- you should know a certain amount where you're at in terms of you know when you're approaching games. Is this kind of the forefront thing on your mind? Uh, and if it's not, you need to be working on it more. I think. You know, if you're ever making attacks because they just feel right, or you're countering a spell because you feel you should, or anything like that, uh, you need to be examining this more. It, it, in some ways, I think it's it's a, a skill that if you don't, if you're not noticing it, then you you need to be paying attention. Which I think is a lot of things in in magic are the hardest things to find are the things that you don't even know to look for. You know, you you mentioned it before that you were you know, talking with, let's say, John or Seth or whatever about uh, a, a play they made and you, and that you disagreed with, and they just talked about something, and you're like, I wasn't even thinking about that. Uh, those are the hard things to get to. And I think when it comes to a plan, I think most people who play Magic don't really play with a plan in mind. So uh, would you say you're, you're planning to execute what the, like, you know, especially when you're in the zone, you know, you mentioned now how you're kind of been coasting a bit and not playing your hardest but when you were at your peak in your prime would you say you were playing from the beginning of the game towards an end game that you knew how these matchups would play out like for example esper dragons versus something like the collected company decks or like sphinx's revelation decks versus mono black control decks yeah absolutely you're you know you you have a you need to have a plan you need to be executing your plan and of course the plan isn't going to even in a matchup like let's say sphinx's revelation versus mono black the, the plan doesn't isn't always going to be the same one, even though it's the same matchup. Uh, some of the early turns and stuff are going to change that. You know, you can have multiple potential plans, and then based off of what happens, you need to choose one because the other one other doors have been closed to you, or you know, or again, you look at the the potential branches, and more of them lead to victory following that plan than one of the other ones. You sound like a total chess player right there. Like you, you literally went from like, oh yeah, like if they do, th- if they like thought sees you and they take this card, then this is what your branch looks like. And it's like, okay, Alex. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, certainly thought sees is, is a perfect example of that. I mean, whether your opponent's casting it on you and taking one of your cards, or you're casting it on them. I mean, one of the strengths of thought sees, right, is you can look at their hand, and you know your hand, and so you can see like, what, where are they strong? Where are they weak? You know, do they have three removal spells in hand and one counter spell, or do they have three counter spells and one removal spell? You know, you usually if your game plan is going to change based off of, of what the answer to that is, you're going to take a different card, usually the one that they don't have redundancy in, right? And you're going to fight on that axis. You know, if if they're low on removal, you're going to take the removal and try and jam something underneath their counter spells. If they're low on counter spells, you'll take their counter spell and kind of not care that much about your creature plan anymore, try and resolve a planeswalker or whatever, right? Um, or just wait till you draw another thoughts used to be able to answer, like take a removal spell later or something, you know, that you can 
you can decide what your plan is going to be based off of that, off, off the new information you're getting. And that's kind of, that's one of the big ways that magic and chess differ in that, you know, in chess, the information is all out there, right? Uh, whereas in magic, there's new information coming all the time. And so you need to be able to adjust on the fly and figure out a new plan based off of the new information you get and, and what you learn about, you know, your opponent's deck, their hand, and sometimes also just like how they approach the matchup themselves. You can sometimes tell what their plan is based on how they're playing and then try and find a plan that kind of trumps theirs, right? Uh, if they're playing on a card advantage axis, you know, maybe you want to be playing on a tempo axis or maybe you want to go bigger than them on the card advantage axis. Uh, it all depends on the context. Before we go into questions from the listeners, I, I just want to ask, is there any tips that you have to people to like improve the skill? Like if they want to plan ahead and, and practice this, whether it's in limited, constructed, just magic in general, is there anything you would say to them? Uh, take a step back from how they normally play magic and re-examine things. Mm -hmm. uh, I do a bunch of coaching. And one of the big things I tell my listeners, I mean, like uh, my, my students is that, uh, Try for each play that you when you're about to make a play, take like one or two extra seconds longer than you normally would before making the play. Because everybody knows this that you make a mistake and then it's two seconds later, oh my god, I shouldn't have done that. That's a huge mistake. Why did I do that? Well, you know, the reason is you didn't fully think it through, right? You 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 often played by instinct, and that's like the way I play is very far from that. You know, there there's the feel players and there's like the the analytical players and I'm much more on the analytical side, which is kind of why I can get away with not as much practice to be a really good field player. You kind of need to be playing magic nonstop all the time, know every deck in and out, know like the beats of, of a, of a matchup, right? You know, you're playing this matchup, you know, that like turn four Niss is coming now. So like, I need to do this, you know, and, and you've just done it. You know, that's kind of how Brad Nelson plays and it works really well for him. That type of that style doesn't work for me. I don't think my style would work for him. But I think you you do need to incorporate to be like at the very top. You need to incorporate both. Like when I was at my best, I also kind of knew all the beats. I knew what all the decks were doing. You know, I I had had that, so I could could play by feel. But what I found interesting with me is often if I'm like too practiced with a deck, I autom I go more into autopilot because uh, I have that that sense of feeling, that intuition, and it often serves me worse than if I just was a little practice with the deck enough to, to have have like the, the understanding of what's going on, but still that I have to work at it. I have to work with my conscious mind to uh, to come up with, with the plays to calculate everything. I think that you, you know, you need to find a balance that works for you, but it's important to at least try both methods. And I think most people do gravitate towards being field players. Uh, so taking a step back and, you know, when you're about to make a play, especially a tough play, uh, just asking yourself, what is my goal this game? Like, how is this play going to try and make me win? You know, how am I, how, how am I going to win? How is this going to accomplish my goals? And if it's not, then maybe you need to reevaluate and, and do a different plan. You know, it's... I, think, I think that's super important. I, I had that similar thing come up recently. I've been doing some coaching as well. And one of the people he really likes to play control decks and we did a bunch of sessions that weren't playing, but he wanted to like play some modern and he was locally and we were playing and he's just casting memory deluge and he's spending like five or six minutes thinking about stuff. And I'm like, Hey, when you cast that deluge, did you have in mind 
what cards you think you're most afraid of from me and what cards you're trying to find. And he just looked at me and he goes, no, I, I had four mana. I was like, I got to use, I got to make sure you use all my mana. And I was like, okay, new rule. If you're casting a cantrip, I have to be able to say, tell me what the plan was. And if you can't answer that, then you're not allowed to cast that card. And that's how we played for a little bit. And I, I think it really helped him. It's like, like, okay, if I'm casting memory day luge here, you know, looking at the top four cards in my deck, what cards do I need to be worried about from Mason? That way, you know, we already kind of know, and it helps him stay in the game as well. I, I think a lot of players could really benefit from doing that sort of thing. And so, Oh, absolutely. I think that's a, a great point. I mean, I do agree with him that for a card like Memory Deluge, you know, you don't have four open mana that often. So you usually <laughs> do want to fire it off. But you, of course, should also know, like, what you're scared of, what you're trying to, to look for uh, when you're casting it. In Legacy and Vintage, for example, people have a Ponder or a Brainstorm, and they often fire those off like, you know, or preordain, whatever, they fire those off right away, when often you can hold it because you don't actually know what you need yet. You should not be casting that unless you can say, like, this is the card I want to find, where because it's it, the mana cost is so so low, you can afford to to wait. I had a lot of success in the era when Scrylands were around for the first time, because I think I used them more effectively than a lot of other people did, partly, you know, because of my ability to plan, uh, I wouldn't fire them off on the first turn as much as other people would. Sometimes, you know, if I realized I didn't need to play an untapped land on turn two, I could, you could play an untapped land on turn one and then play Skyland turn two when your opponent's shown what deck they're playing, for example, in the world of closed deck lists. But also once you've drawn a card, sometimes you, you want to draw one more land, but you don't really want to draw two more lands. Well, you don't really want to scry right away because if it's a land, you're going to keep it. But if you draw a land for your first turn and then scry and you see a land, you know you can bottom it, right? That's a, a, a very simple example, but just to get the idea of what I'm talking about. It's been happening a lot, I think, for players. Like a, the new age of players with uh, Expressive Iteration, I don't know how much you put at that card, but yeah. I found that's been a big level-up moment for people when I like see them in the streams or I talk to them or do coaching. And I've been very analog to that in Brainstorm and Legacy. And they know about that because they listen to content. Like, yeah, you're supposed to wait on your brainstorms. But the idea of waiting with Expressive is, you know, it, it just wasn't occurring to them, right? It's like you said, it's like you're looking for things you don't know the answer to. So it, it is uh, very interesting, very true. Yeah, like, I mean, with Expressive Iteration, a lot of people just automatically play turn three. I'm going to find a land in a spell, put a spell in my hand, put the land in the play. And there's a good amount of time that that is right. But if you autopilot, if you always do that, you're going to miss the large percentage of the time, which, you know, maybe it's not that large. Maybe it's only 10%, but it's still... That's a large percent. It's still, you know, it's still a relatively large in terms of magic percentages uh, of when you should be saving it because you already have plenty of land drops. You want to wait till turn eight, you can play that. And then maybe you can even get two spells off of it. You know, whatever. You don't know what you what you need. Do you need a removal spell? Uh, do you need a counter spell? you need a threat you know you can you can just wait you can you can chain expressive iterations too potentially on a later turn all sorts of things if you don't think about it if you just play on autopilot you're you're not going to encounter those those scenarios and you're just losing 10 percent of your equity on that card going back to what you were saying about kind of the different play styles and and understanding like but like kind of this this play by feel or play by strategy i guess you could say i said analytical oh analytical that's fair yeah by by feel or by 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 thought i guess (laughs) you could say i was just gonna say that like i have never felt more like now we're 388 episodes in i uh i don't know that anybody's ever 
needed to at me so hard on a comment made on the show, Alex. So I I appreciate that. But like, I really needed to hear that and really understand like, where am I at right now in magic? What is my, what is my goal in like, how, how, how can I improve? And I hope that that resonated with a lot of listeners. Speaking of uh, adding people, Abe, well, let's move on to our question winners. These winners will get store credit to either Oasis Games or a random prize from Oasis Games. But Abe, what is our first question? Our first question comes from Adrian, and it is, how can Playing Constructed help me improve in Limited? We maybe t- touched on this a little bit, but in Constructed, I think you learn about game plans and having a, a strategy, I think, is is more more obvious. Uh, you don't necessarily figure out, you know, the, the changing your strategy. That's a more advanced concept, but the idea of playing an archetype, aggro control, you know, mid range combo, kind of the idea of of having a deck. And I think for limited, you know, people focus on pick orders for cards a lot when they don't, you know, consider the fact that you really do need to draft a cohesive deck, not just a collection of good cards. Like a collection of good cards, obviously, is usually going to be fine you know you can see in constructed that works too like basically every gen deck ever is pretty much just collection of good cards right in limited you you still also get advantage from you know having synergies but also like sure the passivism effect card you know is a higher pick order than the creature you know that two drop creature or vice versa but you probably want to mix rather than just all of one or, you know, maybe, you know, depending on your strategy, you, you might want the pacifism, but not want the, the two-drop creature because you're planning to play a control deck, you know, that, you know, like, let's say back in, when there was, like, the clear-to-mind control decks where you didn't really want any creatures, you just wanted to answer all their threats forever and ever. That would change your pick order. Uh, you know, the fact that, again, let's talk about that deck, that you really do need to find that copy of clear-to-mind, possibly even a second copy, and that might be more important than taking a card that, you know, is generally thought of as much better because you, you that is more important to your deck and to your strategy. Uh, our next winner is our Twitter winner. And by the way, uh, just reach out to me if you're one of these people. This one is your boy, Doug Potter, by the way, Alex. Nice. Uh, the Dougie P on Twitter says, what is one of your best tips to improve your mental resilience to losing? Well, uh, thanks for the question, Dougie P. So, you know, he was actually one of the people who played the Miracles deck, I think, the second highest finisher with the deck, I think, in the tournament. He lost playing for cash, if I recall correctly. But yeah, Dougie P. So how do how do what are the best tips to to improve a mental wellness or mental resilience in, in when you when you lose? Okay, look, losing sucks. Whether you're a beginner, whether you're an, an intermediate player, competitive player, professional player, nobody likes to lose. And in some ways it sucks more when, you know, I've lost matches where I'm playing for six figures in money of equity, you know, uh, that hurts. It sucks. I guess my, my biggest thing to, to say is, you know, old adages like the, remember that the, the master has failed more times than the novice has even tried. Right. You know, I'm, I'm a professional player, someone like Paulo, you know, is, again, who we've, we've mentioned over and over, we've lost way more times than basically anybody listening to this podcast has. We've also won more times, but we've lost more. And kind of when you lose, you lose and lose and lose, and you lose in all signs of ridiculous scenarios. You know, uh, Eric Froelich, famous for having lost in in more million to one scenarios than any other human being alive, uh, according to his Twitter. Uh, 
uh, you know, it, it, it happens to all of us. I've lost a million to one, you know, spots a, a bunch of times because, you know, you play enough games, it's going to happen every, you know, you're going to run worse than you ever thought was possible at, at some point in your life. Uh, and, you know, that experience kind of guides you and, and lets you accept it. You, like when you're playing game, you have to accept that losing is a possibility. My mindset kind of when I go in a tournament is that like I expect to win and that, you know, so losing is unexpected outcome. And, you know, I do win more than I lose, but it's still a possible outcome. And I've accepted it when I, when I play, even though, you know, it's not the desired outcome. I think, you know, if you really want to delve into it, if you really have problems with, with losing, I think you need to look for more philosophy based uh, things other than just, you know, magic practice work on on magic not necessarily being part of your your identity in terms of like your self-worth uh i think that's a big danger that a lot of competitive players can can step into that you feel like you're a loser if you lose at magic and you only feel good when you're winning at magic uh it's important to have you know a strong sense of self and you know to, to understand that you know you're a worthwhile human being regardless of what your score is in this tournament, regardless of what your score is in the last 10 tournaments. In fact, you could never win a match, match of magic and still be a worthwhile person. Alex, you, you have you have over 700 losses, according to MTG ELO Project. I thought at, you were saying that when I was talking at, about the person who's never no, won, that I was adding uh, at, at GPs and Pro Tours. And I, I, am, I only have 79 at GPs and Pro Tours. So, clearly... <laughs> exactly, like... I, I've I've lost plenty. You've uh, you've lost more. You've lost more at GPS than I played. <laughs> it at like high level magic tournaments, and it, I think that yeah. so often people get really stuck on their next moment, their next thing that it like it feels soul crushing. Yeah, I mean, especially the way magic tournaments are structured, there's not that many of them, and. Like to actually have a finish that you feel good about, you have to win more than you're actually expected to win. Like, you know, to top eight a pro tour, you have to run incredibly hot, even if you're one of the best players in the world. To win a PTQ, of course, you have to, you know, even if you're, even if you're Paulo, you're not a, you're not a favorite to win a PTQ that you enter. So you have to accept that that's going to happen. And, you know, you don't get that many chances at tournaments and they're also top heavy. So losing feels extra bad for that, especially as you move up the competitive like circuit, you know, you, you started as a big fish in a small pond and you become a smaller fish and you're, but you're still used to winning at the rate that you were winning in your local scene. You're going to be winning less than you were because the competition's better. And, you know, that at first that's hard to take. So you, you do need to get more experience with that, more experience in losing. And if you really struggle again, um, you can focus on your self-worth Focus on things like uh, you can look in some philosophy. I recommend stoicism. Uh, you can realize that you know the the losses don't actually affect you. It's only your your emotional response to to your losing, uh, and try and work on that from there. But I I want to highlight what you just said though. But before that, uh, which is like you know Paulo goes to a PTQ. Like Paulo isn't guaranteed to win that thing, right? But like. Like, just think about the number of people that have won Pro Tours, Alex. The, the, like, and then think about the number of people that have won two Pro Tours. And then think about the fact small that... Number. The what? Two Pro Tours is a very small number. Uh, yeah, I, I am looking at it. It is one, two, three, four, five, six, 
eight, nine, ten people, and two of and three of them are in the Phoenix Foundation. Yeah. <laughs> so, <about> right. <laughs> so like, I think that people just, I don't know, myself included, like, I, I, this is something that I had to get over really easy. I think it's something that Abe you talked about on one of my first episodes with you, but just like understanding like what a good finish means for you is just playing better than you expected of yourself and like being proud of your play. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I think it's important yeah. to, to set your, like, it's, you know, it's nice to have goals for your results, but you know, I think it's, it's more important to set your own internal goals of, of just trying to play well, trying to play the, as well as you can and, you know, focus on improving in the process rather than the results and the results will eventually come if you have enough iterations, right? You'll eventually have something. But I mean, there's a lot of great players who've never won a pro tour, right? You can you can look at that. Mason Clark, <laughs> like <laughs> that guy's six two, owns a Tesla, <laughs> and is single. So yeah. he's one of the most, the most six two people who's never won a pro tour. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm just glad someone said it. You know, clip it. Yeah. No, I I, but, I do think it's interesting too. I'm sorry to cut in there. Um, in such a, a hee ha ha way as well. But I think about like when you're talking about the, your pro tour win with the Miracles deck and how, you know, you're like putting yourself in position to get lucky and you're like, you know, like this is how it looks on the outside, right? It's like, wow, Hain got so lucky there. And it's like, well, Hain didn't cast his thing twice until he could hit like Terminus or Entreat, which were his only outs there or whatever. You know what I mean? And I, I think so much about how Magic players get really mad at themselves when they lose. And in reality, it's kind of like, well, you're going, you go into it, you know, you're probably going to lose like a fair number of the games. Like almost no one ever top is a GP that was like 40% time, right? of them. Right. Like it's like a lot, even when you're great. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I think about like, you just have losses to give, like even at a grand prix, right? Like you kind of have like one to give to top eight still. And it, I feel like it ends people's whole day where they get so deflated by it, but there's still like the whole tournament to play. But also more importantly, it's like, did you come to win the grand prix or are you trying to like, become the best magic player you can and when you look back when magic's done and you're done with it are you happy with what you had you know and i think it's so much different where i think so many people are like yeah i went to vegas to play this grand prix to win the grand prix it's like well i went to vegas to play the best i could play you know what i mean and put myself in the best positions i can and this doesn't even matter it's all part of like setting up this history for myself so that when i'm retired from magic or i moved off my life i can look back and be happy about how like I improved and how well I played and I pushed myself as hard as I could go. And every part of this was like, you know, like another step in it. Like I think back to like, there are a lot of moments where I can remember key things happening. I remember, I wish I remember the exact scenario, but like I played autumn. I don't know if you remember this hand, but we played autumn's uh, battle box against each other. And you explained something about removal spells or whatever, but like I took that to heart and like, I've made that part of my repertoire. And like, that was like another learning moment, you know? And it's like, I'm, doing all these things and you as a player are doing all these things to like set up your legacy for lack of a better word. So when I hear people talk about like, they're so focused on results and everything like that, it feels like we we're both focused in a, on a similar end goal of like, you know, making these accomplishments of magic, but like doing it for yourself and like being honest with yourself and being kind to yourself that sometimes it's not going to work out. I think is so much better than the like, wow, I didn't top eight this grand prix. I am the worst. Or I didn't even cash this grand prix. Wow. You know, and so I don't know. I don't yeah, know how you feel about that. I mean, I yeah, I, I completely agree. I I think focusing on yeah, playing good magic and learning stuff is important. Like, you want to just go in every match. You know, you're gonna try and play your best. You're gonna try and learn what you can from it. You're gonna try and win. 
And, you know, that happens, you know, a lot of people do start out winning and then lose and get deflated and stop playing their best. Uh, it's important to, you know, keep trying, you know, whatever your record is. If you're in the tournament, you know, just if you're playing a match of magic, you should be trying to win if you're in the competitive side, obviously. And yeah, I mean, like, you know, my own story, I, I, I believe I have 14 PTQ top eights before I finally won one. Uh, there was one point where I lost, I played three PTQs and lost all three finals in a row. And this was like back when I play like, you know, two PTQs a season or whatever. So like, it was pretty brutal. It was, you know, it, it was demoralizing. And I lost three finals in a row and quit magic for a year, Alex. So you're like a better human than I. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's the, the thing is like, that's not the part of my story that you hear. You hear my the story of like, oh, look, this newcomer who came in and won a pro tour. You don't hear about like the struggles and all the losing that happened before it. And I can think that's particularly like the case now, especially with like the way social media is. You just hear about all the people winning. You know, when there's all these arena opens, people post, oh, made day two, oh, made this money. You don't see, not everybody posts all the, who's, who participated. They don't, you don't see that many posts of, tried seven times, didn't make day two, or on day two, scrubbed out again, you know. Same thing, like, you, the pros don't usually post or, or get noticed when they have a horrible tournament. You know, you you notice when they're hoisting the trophy, you notice when they're in the top eight profile. The majority of the time, they're not, but you're, you're seeing someone you recognize because, you know, magic is a skill game, but it's not going to be, you know, you, you don't see the people struggling and you only see your own failures. You don't see the other people. You only see other people's successes. And I think it's important to keep uh, a realistic view of that and, you know, to realize that you are seeing a flawed picture. So don't be hard on yourself because you're losing, you know, you only win every so often when it seems like some people win all the time. Uh, you're getting a biased sample and, you know, you're also, even the sample you're looking at is, is biased. Like, you're going to be following these people because they're already great magic players who have won events and stuff. You know, there's a classic XKCD comic that I remember seeing of a guy who who's like giving a speech. He's like, yeah, you know, I spent all this money on lottery tickets and I lost, but I never gave up. And I finally bought one and I won the lottery and you can do it too. And it's like, you know, obviously <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> same thing, but they're now like out of money, you know, and, and, that's a representation of pro magic in, in multiple ways. So, <laughs> uh, this is where we would put the YouTube comment that would win our store credit if we had one last week, but we don't. So I'm actually going to pitch it to Abe, uh, since this is the guest you wanted, Abe, to ask whatever question you want to Alex. I'm so on the spot. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm six foot one, Abe. In case you. Want oh. To <laughs> That's good to know. I I was really really um enjoying relating to a lot of this conversation about around uh, like resilience to losing. I think that question from, from Doug was really good. Uh, you mentioned in it, your um, mentality when you come in and play a tournament is that you expect to win. Um, like how do you balance that as a confidence thing versus like an overconfidence thing? Is that, is that something like, how does that work and, and how would you explain that? Yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's kind of how I've expected going, gone into tournaments for a long time. Like, it's more of a confidence thing than overconfidence. I mean, again, I know that losing is a possibility. I know that it's, you know, it's going to happen. It's almost unheard of that you play a tournament and don't lose at all. Right. Even if you win the tournament. Uh, but it's just that like, I, you know, I kind of visualize it. It's just like, 
it's like with that the plan. My plan is to win. I'm visualizing the end goal, and I'm going to try and take the the roads to get there. Uh, and I think it is important to have confidence in yourself because uh, I do think that leads to to winning more. I, I think it's it's good in other areas of life too. You know, for instance, let's imagine like a person, let's say a hypothetical person who's six foot two and single. Like if they have a lot of confidence, they'll probably end up having you know a bunch of dates and a lot of success. But if they're not confident, they might end up staying single. Uh, fun fact: They're not confident. Yeah, like. <laughs> but, <laughs> curious. But anyways, uh, enough about that hypothetical person. It's it's also it's like, I think it is important, and I think there's a reason that you see people go on streaks a lot. You know, in, in magic, I think that does have something to do with confidence because uh, it is important that you know you. Are, are confident in your plays that you're making that you you don't second guess yourself because I think that does cause a lot of problems and also when you tend when you are doing things right you get more confident and there's a feedback loop that you know you then continue doing those same things uh, whether it's in your preparation or in your in your play so I think a certain amount of confidence is good to go in when it comes to real life face to face magic I think there's also there's something that can be said for like intimidation factor that like you know if you if your opponent feels like that you you think you're going to win or whatever they they might be like more scared more cautious with some of their plays and i think you know that is a big source of mistakes that that people can make but that's maybe a topic for another day speaking of uh 62 single tesla owner uh streamers mason why don't you take us home First, I just want to say thank you so much, Hayden, for coming on the podcast and getting to hear your thoughts and your insights and all this stuff. It was really interesting, eye-opening, and it's always great to hear, you know. Uh, we don't get as much of you as we probably want these days, but uh, hopefully that changes as things change in the future. But thank you so much for coming on and spending your night with us. No? Shaking your head no? <laughs> no. I, 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 I doubt there's going to be too much more of me in the, in the magic sphere as time goes on, but we'll see. Dude, I, if, I we're, if, we're, if this is your last magic podcast... Like, I am honored. It's it's likely. I mean, unless for some reason KYT and I get the band back together. And he did. Record. He did just buy a mic. I just saw it. So. Yeah. Well, he's he's about to be a father soon, so he's not gonna not gonna have as much time for for podcasting. I like how you're like maybe if there's some reason it's like yeah, me buy me lunch or whatever and I'll be there. You know, I I, I know I know what you're saying. <laughs> I'm speaking the language. No, but but seriously, I do, I do have one last question. That if that's the case. And you can just you just have to be you don't have to do too much into it. You're looking back on your magic career now. You mentioned this is like the end of it, you know, in some ways, whatever. Potentially, how do you feel about it all? Are you like happy, positive? You know, like how's yeah, it feel? I've, I've mixed feelings. It's uh, it's interesting. Like there was certainly a point in time where I wondered whether winning the pro tour was the worst thing that could have happened to me, in terms of like you know it was it was a curse because I. From that, I did end up putting more energy and time into magic when I could have, you know, put into something else. But I think, you know, looking back on it now, you know, there, there's good parts, there's bad parts. But I think I got a lot of opportunities and I met a lot of awesome people that I wouldn't necessarily have have otherwise. Uh, and for the most part, I think I enjoyed the journey. I have my own, like, mental health stuff that, you know, magic helped me with and put me in a spot to also end up working through. I mean, financially also, you know, people don't talk about that that much, but it's it uh, it worked out relatively well for me, especially per hour. Uh, and so I think I look I look back fondly on it mostly, but 
it's just, I don't, I really don't know what my life would have turned out with otherwise, you know, it could have been better, could have been worse. It was, it was something. And it's, it's rare that you can really be, you know, do something that you can say that for a portion of time, like you were the best in the world. And I think there was like a year or so where I was, I was the best. I haven't been for the last while, but I've, I've still been one of the best and I'm going to journey. And I think I'll, I'll still always, always love the game. Like, uh, if I have kids someday, I'll, I'll, I'll probably teach it to them. And, but my main way is I'm going to probably interact with magic going forward. Uh, after wizard's contract runs out is I'll probably make myself a, a cube, uh, and not update it with whatever nonsense cards they print these days. Sure. Uh, and you know, play some games with friends, maybe play like magic online vintage cube every so often. That's my, my biggest magic vice. I think I got to jump in here. Uh, and you know this, Alex, because I, I texted you about this uh, yeah. about a year ago. Uh, I might cry, so editor, just leave it in. Whew. Yeah, just edit however you can. Um, <laughs> whoo. I don't know that I've said this on the podcast, so it's going to be hard. Um, so for those who don't know, uh, Alex made a post. I think I think you changed the post, so it's still pinned to your, your Twitter now. My, my Twitter, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, at the end of, the end of 2019, I, I was really struggling, and... And uh, Alex made this post, and I, uh, I think I reached out to you on Facebook in this conversation, and uh, you taught you uh, you're actually the one. <sighs> Sorry, I'm not allowed to rub my eyes. I've got these like. $1,200 custom contacts in. So, <laughs> uh, like, yeah, like, like they're really hard and they'll actually like, hurt me. Um, but you know, this conversation, we, we had this conversation on Facebook. I told you how much it meant to me. And I talked to you about kind of how I was struggling with a couple things. You know, one of them being the thing that, you know, you talked about how you struggled with is just this, existentialism and then also the struggling that I was having with um, uh, imposter syndrome and uh, you're actually the one that convinced me to go to therapy and fun fact that's actually one of the reasons that I quit the show for when I quit it so you all can blame Alex for that but in all honesty you in a lot of ways man I might cry too, man. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I might lose it. Ugh. In a lot of ways, uh, you're the reason I'm here, and I just want some things. 
I'm, it means a lot to me that, that, that I could help you in that way. You know, I mean, like, I shared that post because I didn't, you know, I didn't want anybody else to, to, to feel so alone. And like, so, you know, it, there's, it, life's tough and there's all, you know, mental illness is, is tough and it's not talked about. And, you know, it's, it's, it's still so stigmatized even, even now, even though it's getting, getting better. And, you know, like some, you know, you know how to treat or deal with someone who has cancer, you know, but someone who's got a, a terrible mental illness, you, you don't really know what to do. And, and people, you know, view it like it's their fault and, it's, and, and that there's nothing you can do. And that's, that's not the case. You know, there's, there are a lot of support systems and, you know, a lot of people, you know, around you, no matter, no matter what you feel, there's people who care about you in, in this world. And there's, there's things can get better. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard when you're, when you're in the, the depths of, of, of the pit, you know, you can, you can't see the light anymore and it just feels like everything gets, it's just, you know, un, unbeatable. But, you know, if you take a lesson for magic, you know, you can, there's, there's always some outs, right. There's always, always some way to get out. And, uh, uh, I'm, I'm happy that you, you decided, Spencer, you took the, the, the step to go and get some therapy and, and help yourself. And, um, you know, and I, I, I got, I got, uh, yours was one of a few messages I got, uh, from, from that post of, of people who, who really identified with it. And, um, you know, it was, it was, it was tough to write, especially, and to decide to, to, to post it because, Again, there's so much stigma about, about this stuff, and it's uh, it was scary. But once I once I did, once I was open about it, I I felt great. I felt kind of free, and uh, really, kind of everything I got was just positive feedback from people and people that it helped. And so, you know, I think if more people can kind of feel that way, can feel feel that they can be open about about their struggles, and you know, connect with people and you know that that as a man, it's it's okay to cry sometimes. You know, uh, we're we're programmed to that it's not. You have to always be be strong. And this idea that you know anything anything less than th this pinnacle of toxic masculinity makes you makes you feminine or weak or whatever, uh, and that's that's just also wrong. And it's and it and it's killing people. And, um, I'm glad it wasn't me. And I thanks, man. Yeah, I'm. I'm really glad it wasn't you too. I'm glad we could both be here uh, <laughs> having this conversation now instead of. Yeah, we'll just both cry on this podcast so everybody can see it, and then maybe <laughs> <laughs> they'll they'll go to therapy and do with their therapist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, therapy is a tricky thing because you know when you first do therapy you think oh the, the therapist can have all the answers for me right no it's not that's not how it works it's they have the questions you have to come up with the answers yourself right you know and uh yeah i, and I hard work. it really is and and yeah. i i wouldn't i wouldn't have done it without you man so thanks anyway i'll i'll pitch back to mason we you know <laughs> i love you too but <laughs> sorry well <laughs> I mean, that was a genuinely heart-touching moment that's, you know, thank you for sharing that. That's pretty hard to share. 
And I can't think of anything more American than from pivoting that to capitalism, baby. So if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. The show will always be free. If you want to support the show, you can go to there. <laughs> there are a lot of different things you can do. We talk about the open diamond level. We make jokes so that we don't cry around these parts. It's our coping mechanism. So you can make sure to do that. If you want to find anyone here, you can find us all on Twitter at various places. Uh, you probably don't want to find Hane, I guess, if you don't like magic stuff anymore. But you do have some good clown posts on there. So, Hane, if someone wanted to find you for whatever reason, where could they go? All right. So, my Twitter is at insane with a Y. So, I-N-S-A-Y-N-E. Hane, my last name, H-A-Y-N-E. Uh, and, yeah, I I don't talk that much about magic Some somewhat. I, I you love to bring up the greatest limited player of all time discussion. I feel like that's oh, yeah, a, I mean, a bi-monthly thing. I, I you know, <laughs> ben Stark's got to be paid his dues. 99% of... Never once has Alex are... ever said that thing that you just said, Abe, just to be clear. Yeah, we all know it's <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, I... And yeah, we'll see also my... my what my, my Twitter looks like also when I'm no longer under Watsy contract. We'll, 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 we'll see on that too. I am that. very interested for that date. Is the kind of Hold on. Now, reminder? Yeah. yeah. Is there like, uh, is, there, is there an NDA end date that we can all mark on our calendars? Yeah. When, are you allowed to say when the end date is? Are you allowed to do that? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think... <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. It's yeah. fine if you can't. Hey Siri, set a reminder for August, 2022. <laughs> all right. Perfect. I talk sometimes about magic, but yeah, certainly if you're looking for deck lists, uh, don't you should not be looking for my Twitter. But though, what about sideboard guides? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, take the, the put the good cards in and take the bad cards out. Sideboard guide rant is that you know people just do that, but again, with having a plan involves sideboarding too. You know, you you people way often just board in cards based off of what their opponent's deck is in game one, rather than what it looks like post board. And, you know, like for the classic thing is that like aggro decks tend to become more mid range after sideboarding often while control decks tend to bring in anti aggro cards after board. There's some gaming to be done there because, you know, you might want to have some of those anti mid range cards instead of your anti aggro cards in, in your sideboard. Instead, uh, you might want to not board in, those mid-range cards if you are on the play or something and you think your opponent is going to board in their mid-range answers, whatever. That's it. For sure. gonna, I'm, no more magic. <laughs> Done. That was the last Alexander Hain magic theory thing y'all ever got. You remember that, KYT? So- KYT, I got the last moment. I did. <laughs> it was me, Barry. Abe, where can people find you? People can find me, twitter.com uh, slash more nothings. Still offering hammer coaching. Still excited to to show people what it's like uh, with Spencer when we actually can set up a date where it doesn't get interrupted, which is hopefully soon. Um, and yeah, that's where you can find me, Spencer. Yeah, you can find me at Spencer there in H, uh, where I tweet about nerd stuff, mostly magic, but like, you know, other nerd stuff. Uh, you know, today we had a great poll, which uh, I'll make uh, Abe answer on the podcast live. Uh, which is Abe? Is there any greater hit than of dopamine than finding a pop punk band that you like? Yes, it's finding a ska band you like. Yeah, but. it's just not wrong. It's just not true. It's not true. Uh, I, I'd uh, like to say that you know, I, at one point I, I was just looking through cards for like some random uncommon, and I found like four wasteland, four force of will, 
that's, <laughs> that, that's also a that's a different kind of dopamine. <laughs> I've read an article about a former U.S. president's wife. Maybe that's not for here. Never mind. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> uh, you can also find my weekly nerd, my semi-weekly nerd podcast at Neat Nerd, uh, and then uh, you can find me learning Hammer Time from Abe coming up soon on the Constructor Criticism YouTube channel. And you can find me on Twitter at Mason E. Clark, tweeting during the work hours. You know, what am I supposed to do, work during work? You can find me here each and every week. You can find me on Card Kingdom, writing articles specifically about the arena format, so standard, historic, and alchemy, everyone's favorite new format. And you can find daily uploaded videos on the YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash Mason Clark MTG. We're going to be everything from modern to historic. It's going to be pretty awesome. So thank you all so much for listening. Once again, hey, thank you so much for coming on, and we'll see you all next week for another episode of Constructed Criticism.